Joining me on the show today is BAFTA award-winning actor Jason Watkins. He talks about his whole career and his recent turn in the remake of Are You Being Served? All that and more on today's Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. Hello and welcome to Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host Benjamin and joining me on the show today is BAFTA award-winning actor Jason Watkins. I was very, very lucky to sit down with him last month over Skype and have a bit of a chat about his whole career, his training, his thoughts, and uh, to see how he thinks the industry has evolved. And he also talks about all his upcoming projects, and there are a lot of them. So here's that chat with Jason Watkins. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today. Uh, My pleasure. No, nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. My absolute pleasure. Now, what inspired you to become an actor? Uh, well, I suppose really that, I think often it just sort of happens, doesn't it, really? I think uh, you, um, I think it just sort of happens. And uh, I, uh, I suppose the first time really that I, I used to play a lot of sports when I was a kid and I used to, uh, I was like a semi-professional footballer when I was about 17, 18. But before then, I played a lot of cricket and I was sort of doing drama, did all the school plays and just enjoyed, enjoying that. Uh, there's no real history in my family of uh, performers or performing at all in music or anything. Um, but I got really good at impersonating. So I, when I used to play cricket, I, I was quite useful, quite good. So I ended up playing in the adult teams and uh, for my local club, and I impersonated all the all the team, all the different different ways of batting and all their different uh, hang-ups and foibles and. Uh, idiosyncrasies and that sort of uh, I used to just entertain the players in the bar afterwards and stuff like that when I was about sort of 16, 17 so there's that kind of performing and then then there's the more conventional you know uh, school drama stuff and um, so yeah that kind of led that led to thinking about you know maybe going to drama school I kind of I was not a very good reader, uh, so uh, I had sort of reading difficulties, and so schoolwork, uh, although the teachers thought that I was reasonably bright, I, I just couldn't, really couldn't fulfil it at all in written work and stuff like that. So um, I, uh, you know, drama was a, a natural place to go, and I kind of, I wanted to be a PE teacher, but I just couldn't do the ac- academic side of it. Um, so, you know, drama was really a kind of no, non-academic option and then I auditioned to drama school. Mm. So what drama school did you attend and do you think it's crucial that young actors attend a drama school-like institution now? Well, I've got, there's, there's funny enough, I mean, my, my son, uh, he's now, you know, he's 20 and he, you know, he is much more academic than me and has got that kind of ability. Um and we're, you know, he's sort of deciding whether he wants to go to drama school, whether he wants to just go in to read English or just to start work as an actor. And he has already started work as an actor, you know, he's done a few little jobs. And there's lots of people who always ask me, you know, do I need to get trained? Well, I suppose the thing is, I, I really, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Having not read a book really properly, I may have read half of Lord of the Rings and like, you know, a couple of car manuals. Uh, and certainly books on sport, but not to any great depth. When I went to drama school, you know, all the sort of world of literature and the teaching of the teaching was so brilliant. Obviously, it was aligned to, um, to, to to plays, but 
you know, it opened my mind to literature in general and the written word and how you get the written word off the page and into drama and all that stuff. So that would not have happened, I don't think, if I'd have just gone straight into acting. And I think if you're serious about it, then it probably is a good thing to train, you know, um, because you get more strings to your bow, I think. Mm, certainly. Do you think not having read as much as some of the other students set you back when you first entered a drama school institution? Uh, you know, I suppose um, I felt like that. I mean, I have to say that probably that's, uh, I think, like a lot of people who are dyslexic or have reading difficulties, there's a sort of, uh, you have to put your lack of literary um, kind of background uh, into context you know and that it doesn't mean that you're not that you're stupid and it doesn't mean that you're not able to act and there are a lot of actors dyslexic and I think they what they like to do is to once you've learnt it and you're speaking it it's yours and you own it and you can explore it and express it and whereas when you're reading it you know it's a more difficult task so people who love hearing literature and and uh, you know uh, the whole idea of it and yet aren't particularly good at reading drama's a perfect place to uh, to A, watch and, and B, you know, to, to, if you can uh, you know, uh, make a living at it mm. And once you graduated drama school how difficult did you find it to break into the industry on any professional level? I think when you've, when you've been, to, again I suppose when you've been to drama school, you know, then you, you, you start work and People go, oh, right, okay, so you're trained. So if I got you into my company for a month, you know, or, you know, for a season, then you're probably going to know what you're doing or you're certainly, you may be, you may have a few tools that other people who are untrained don't have. Like, you know, in vocal, vocally, you know, if you do a whole season on stage, uh, you know, you need to be able to sustain your voice through that period. So things are, like, that's, I suppose, are, are important. But... And it helped me, perhaps, get in the door to meetings. But, I mean, you know, it took me... I started working on the fringe, you know, doing uh, little jobs in uh, uh, plays in, you know, in the suburbs of London. And then I did a tour of six-month, one-night stands all over the country and I think Joe Orton plays. And, uh, and then I did a bit of rep, you know, what we, which now doesn't exist so much in this country where you... You know, each town has a repertory theatre and, you know, a company and you join that and do a few plays and then you maybe go into the next town and, you know, that kind of thing. I did that a little bit. But so, um, but you know, it, you know, it took me a long time. I mean, I've worked in a lot of areas, you know, been paid no money at all and got, you know, travel expenses and, uh, and I worked at the National Theatre and, you know, done James Bond films. So, I mean, I have quite a... A spread, but early on it was you know quite tough really to get to get work, and I think that's still the case now. You know, you just have to get out there and work, and and, and you probably have to get a job as well, you know, to, to uh, subsidise that. Mm. And obviously, you mentioned repertory theatre being a sort of a good launching board to do some work. That model has has died out in the past few years. Why do you think that is? Um, well, that's, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean, uh, uh, it's. I mean, there are notable exceptions, like, you know, Chichester Festival Theatre and uh, Sheffield and, you know, Manchester Royal Exchange, just thinking of a few off the top of my head. But there used to be more, and they used to be more serious plays, and they're now a, 
about you know the commercial opportunities have to be exploited because there isn't the gov government subsidy that there used to be, and that you know the arts um, are seen less of an essential part of our lives. And I, of course, don't agree with that. And I think that you know that uh, the culture of theatre is uh, a very important part of our social cohesion and well-being and should be subsidised. But I suppose, you know, reference theatre is a casualty of uh, underfunding uh, and a more commercial view of the way that, uh, you know, theatre is viewed. Um, and that's a shame, you know, but um, you have to, you know, I suppose, you, as, a, as a punter, you have to be a little bit more discerning about, you know, where you can find good, good, good work. Mm. I mean, obviously, as you said, repertory theatres, that's part of the government cuts and, and so on. But on West End, uh, Rebel Wilson-fronted uh, Guys and Dolls is going to close eight weeks early or something. Do you think this is another repercussion of, of people just having to be more discerning and less funding headed toward the arts? And how would you combat that? Well, I suppose they have less, you know, I suppose people have less money in their pockets. And, you know, the West End is a uh, very muscular place to survive and you have to you probably have to cast a few stars in it to, to, to bring those people in, to bring, you know, to bring audiences perhaps. And sometimes if you don't have a star, you know, that's a, which is completely wholly uh, uh, wrong. You know, I mean, as, as to draw a football analogy, you know, Leicester City had no stars when they won. You know, they, they were a team. And I think, you know, teamwork in the theatre is a great, a great thing and produce a better show than just a one-man, you know, star-led vehicle, you know, uh, but that, of course, sometimes doesn't get people bums on seats initially, and so it's a, it's a very difficult... I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, there are a lot of musicals, obviously, in the theatre, and you, you mentioned Guys and Dolls, and that's a shame that that's gone. That's a great production, and, but, um, uh, you know, straight plays carry with them a risk, and it's difficult for theatre managers to, to take risks and bring in, uh, you know, good, good work. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, West End theatres, of course, are expensive to go to. That's a shame. But of course, places like the National Theatre have, you know, tickets. You know, cheap tickets on a Monday, ten pounds a ticket. Those kind of things. They're absolutely vital. But of course, again, that's part of the, um, you know, the public sector with the with sub subsidy in, into that particular institution. So I don't know what the answer is. I can't solve it. Damn. <laughs> we can only try. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned National Theatre. National Theatre have decided to broadcast their, their shows into cinemas. Do you think that's yeah. taking away audiences from the theatre when people can just go see it at the movies or even in their own home on DVD? Well, I'd be, it'd be interesting to see what the statistics are, but I think it probably has the opposite effect. I think it's such a great idea to do this. and I haven't done one yet, and, um, but uh, I wouldn't mind having a crack. And, you know, I know that they've done um, yeah, this live performance element uh, in cinemas is explored as well in, in, in other areas but I think it's great because I think audiences when they go to cinemas in the regions will look at that and go wow what an event not only are they part of it on the night watching it but they get an idea of the theatre and what it can be and they'll hopefully are thinking well, well I've had a great night but my goodness I really want to go and see that live in that theatre so I think it must work both ways you know, it will hopefully draw audiences to want to go and see theatre more live in general. Um, because, of course, there may be people who go to those events who've never been to the theatre before. So um, I, I think it's generally an encouraging thing. But, of course, you know, with coupled with 
helping regional theatres have, uh, you know, have the ability to bring in really good, interesting shows would be great as well. Mm, it certainly would. Now, one of your most recent projects was appearing in a new episode of the iconic series Are You Being Served as Mr. Humphreys. Now, the original series is, is so iconic. Was there any trepidation on your part when you took on that role? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like completely uh, um, a reckless thing to jump into, <laughs> partly. But, you know, I watched that show when I was young and I, I, I loved it. And, I, you know, he's such a... a fascinating and brilliant character and he's a it would just be a challenge to be able to try and get the spirit of him into this new into this new uh, little homage to you know the original uh, yeah of course you put your head above the parapet to be shot at and uh, as we all did but there was something so warm and endearing about that show and there are obviously there are aspects of it that you wouldn't want to bring forward, in, but and it was only sort of indicative of the time that perhaps there is this, there was in you know a slight um, there were views towards uh, you know uh, I won't don't want to make a massive thing, but obviously you know the women there was a kind of there's a bit of sort of uh, dirty postcard element to to the way some of the jokes were put together then, but I think now. It's uh, it's a slightly different thing, and it's a different world now. And I think what endures about that show are the characters and their flaws and their foibles and their um, weaknesses and their strengths and all those things. It's to do with character and the very human nature of all those characters and the humour that comes out of it. And you know, Mr. Humphries at the time, you know, homosexuality was when it was only just. You know, it was within ten years ago that it was it was illegal. So having an openly gay and particularly camp man at the centre of a, a prime time BBC One comedy, which was the successful of its time for ten years, was a great thing. And I think now we've moved on. It's interesting to see that kind of how that dynamic works. And because you know, thank God, you know, the gay community are much more part of our lives as they always should have been. And are you know are very part of the joy of our society and our popular culture. So having an openly camp man like I don't know you know Louis Spence for example, who's a great entertaining funny funny guy, um, or Alan Carr, you know having somebody clearly is has a is, is gay but is also has a kind of uh, campness to him. Mm. Um, we delight in that and we take a joy in it and and, and often in real life. Many, most people have met somebody who was like Mr. Humphreys and they, their lives have been enriched by him. So I think that, and, and they're entertained by him. And so it was great to have an opportunity to explore that idea and, of course, to perform and be given those wonderful lines and make people laugh. So, you know, ultimately, it was an absolute joy. Mm. And obviously, John Inman made the role famous. So when you filmed it, were you sort of impersonating him playing Mr. Humphreys or did you try and get there in your own mind? Well, I kind of, I, I tried to see what the elements of his performance were, you know, what the character was, the breakdown, the elements of what, what made that character work and why it was so interesting. Things like he loves his work, he's brilliant at his work, he loves, he loves selling things. So it's nothing to do with uh, style of performance, just, you know, what are the sort of kingpins as to why the character worked. Um, and then 
then I thought about you know, a lot of the sort of people that I knew had met, or and you know they're often a couple. Of, I think there was a, a, a young man I met in a shop not too long ago. Uh, it was a sort of perfume shop, and he was it wasn't like Mr. Humphries, but he's openly gay and hugely entertaining and warm and and staff you could tell loved him and and indeed I'm sure he sold a lot of perfume because he was very sort of charismatic so you know people like that and then you know um you know think he's then thinking about you know people that I've met in my life but of course I did watch John Inman and watched his skill and his characterization but I didn't set out to impersonate him absolutely because it's more the spirit of him and uh, once we started rehearsing and started speaking and we've, I found something that seemed to work so and it's certainly been appreciated uh, by uh, it was certainly appreciated on the night and, and subsequently so um, you know I was, I was pretty pleased with how it came out mm, Well it clearly resonated with viewers there's a lot of positive uh, feedback all over social media if the BBC yeah. decided to make more of it, would you be interested in reprising the role? I don't know. I mean, I have to, you know, uh, think about, you know, what, what uh, uh, you know, whether I'd have to think about that. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly busy, that, and there's lots of stuff floating about. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, we, I certainly enjoy doing it, and you know, there's been a mixed. Um, well, my social media has all been completely positive, but I mean, you know, it's uh, there's been one, literally four or five dissenting voices on my thousands of uh, Twitter comments and no, no, notifications. So, but I know that in the popular press, there there had been some, you know, disparaging comments about it. But I don't think that should be, a, and some of it actually wholly inaccurate about it being canned laughter. It was never canned. It was an absolute riot, and in fact. We had to try and ask the audience to calm down a bit because we were trying to keep it uh, on, a, on, a, on a more realistic uh, level. But the, no, it was a hugely warm, enjoyable night. So, but you know, there are uh, there there was criticism in certain quarters, um, but uh, you know that would not be a reason not to do it. The reason would be you know we'd have to have great scripts, and and uh, I feel if I wanted to play him for longer, mm. but um, yeah, we'll see. We will. Well, I mean, speaking of BBC shows, W1A, which you're involved in, has proved a huge hit in its first two seasons. When are we likely to see more of that show? I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping that there will be more of that. I mean, that's funny because that's in the opposite end of the spectrum, perhaps, from uh, are you being served. But, I, you know, I think there's room for everybody. And there are great new shows. There's so many brilliant new shows um, at the moment, you know, um, Catastrophe, Chewing Gum, uh, people just do nothing and flea bag. I mean, they're all extraordinarily good. Uh, I know I've missed a few out, but you know that those particularly jump to mind at the moment. Uh, so you know, I'm pretty sure that shows, more conventional shows, comedy shows on the BBC, um, have a, have a place. Let's say you know uh, that cater for a slightly, let's say, older audience. But those shows I've mentioned perhaps are. Well, have a universal element are for a, a younger crowd, um, and W1A is. Funny enough, W1A has a, as a anyone who works in an office knows understands the dynamic of that show, and I get lots of comments from people who say, "Is the BBC really like that?" And I say, "Well, yes, it is, and partly, you know, there are elements of it." And they say, "Well, God, it's just like my office, just like my workplace, or that character is just like you know somebody in my office." So it is quite a universal and. A, uh, 
show in that respect, and I, you know, it certainly has done very well. I hope it does go again. I'm sure it will actually. Well, I, I heard the, the head of the BBC saying that a new season was set to air next year, but clearly from right. your comments, you haven't heard anything as yet. Oh, they said that. Well, then I can confirm. I can say yes, we're doing it next year. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I think um, I, I, I haven't. I've been sounded out. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, well, obviously that show does satirise the BBC. Are you at all censored or, or moderated to ensure that no jokes at the BBC's expense go too far? Um. I mean, the BBC is a sort of massive sort of behemoth, and. Uh, uh, I think it's very clever of the BBC, you know, to allow a show that satirises itself to exist. And I, it's a bit like, you know, the fool in King Lear, you know, who's pointing out to King Lear, is, you know, that he needs to have a perspective on things, perhaps. And so, you know, it's it's almost like a court gesture within the within the house of the BBC. But I, I, it, I don't think jokes can go too far, really, because it's you know, it's it's satire. Mm. Uh, it's entertaining and it's satire and, but it's also I think it's a clever nod to say by the BBC we're not perfect and we're trying to change we have to modernise the world has to become you know we have to the BBC has to adapt it can't just stay like a post-war uh, you know a behemoth it's got to find audiences all the time and fulfil its, its, its role and be diverse and be you know extremely ultimately be creative so uh, a little thorn in the side every now and again I don't think it's a bad thing mm. well just because you're not busy enough you're also set to join Safe House in its next season what can you tell us about season two of that show well I'm yeah I, I'm filming that at the moment I'm just about to go out and do more of that there's not much I can talk about that because it's 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 such a kind of thriller mm. it's great to be involved in it it's uh and we've got a fantastic script by Ed, Ed Whitmore and uh, Mark Evans, the director, and Baz Irving, the uh, DOP. I'm just thinking people off the top of my head. You know, they're, they're all top of their game. And so it's a really real quality product. It's been shot well, and Mark's got great sort of psychological insight. This is the director, and we certainly are all exploring that. Great cast, Ashley Walters and uh, Stephen Moyer. Uh, and Zoe Tapper, so you know, it, amongst others, and it's uh, it's a great story. I'm so delighted to be part of it. Mm. Well, clearly you're constantly in work. How do you ensure to keep yourself vocally and physically healthy while shooting all these different projects? Uh, and that's a bit of a challenge, particularly having it with a, a young family as well. I've got a nine-year-old daughter, a four-year-old son, and an older children as well. So you know, it, it keeps you uh, keeps you young. Uh, I, do you know what I do about 15, 20 minutes of exercise every day at the moment that's it and I make sure I do that I mean I do more sometimes but no that, that's that's what I do I do 20 minutes uh, even if the kids are throwing things at me I just make sure I do it and that really does seem to help a lot mm. well a few years back you won a BAFTA for your role in the last honour of Christopher Jeffries was that a gratifying experience or something you ever expected? Um, I don't. I don't think anybody expects things like that. And I, uh, I sometimes sort of look at it. I'm looking at it now, um, and it's. Uh, it, it, sometimes you do sort of. Uh, um, you think, oh, is that? Did I? What's that? Did I win that? Or what? You know, it's a weird thing. Um, 
it would be, and it has been great for, I think it's been very good for my work because I think people, it is a sort of, um, to be acknowledged by your peers is, is a really um, very gratifying and it certainly helps in terms of work because I think people go, it's sort of, you know, stamp of quality and uh, that does help. Um, uh, so there's all that around it and the kudos of that. But essentially, I'm just really proud of the work that we all did on that. I mean, everybody. So the experience of doing that work is, you know, by far outweighs, in a funny sort of way, winning it. Winning it was great, and I'm so grateful that people within BAFTA acknowledged uh, all our work and mine in, in this context. But, uh, you know, it's the actual work itself was the most... Uh, gratifying job I've ever done and you know so I just hope that we can get more of those coming my way mm. and speaking of work you've worked in film TV and in theatre what's been your favourite medium to work in so far well they're all they all uh, give you different uh, different things I'm just enjoying working with cameras and working out you know the nature of the way that works you know I'm doing a lot of TV at, at the moment and um, but I've uh, been done a couple of movies. Hampstead is a movie I've done, just done with Diane Keaton, and uh, and then I'm just about to work with Emma Thompson as well. Uh, oh, hopefully, and I say because that's not quite dotted. But uh, you know, so I'm I'm hoping to do more film work, which I think you know it, it, sometimes there's a bit more time in films, not always, but a bit more time, and you can explore psychologically, and you can do all the things you need to get the performance you want, which is a little bit like. Lost on a Christopher Jeffries, you know, I did a lot of homework and I spent a lot of time exploring it and impersonating and uh, and really understanding the themes and reading around the subject and the case. And uh, so, you know, I'd like to do that kind of work. Mm. And hopefully that, and you get more chance to do that perhaps in films. So what's been your favourite project to work on ever then? Well, I suppose that has, you know. The, mm. I very much enjoyed a film called Confetti, which is an improvised film where I played a wedding planner. And I think the process of that I really enjoyed. Um, and, you know, there are one or two plays that uh, stick in my mind but uh, as well. But um, uh, The Seven to Two Masters, which was, a, you know, a, a comedy, which was, which was based on, you know, the um, great Goldoni uh, comedy, which then went on to, you know, we toured that around the world to Australia as well, actually, to the Perth Festival uh, and in the West End and stuff. That was a great character. But no, I mean, the Lost Time of Christopher Jeffries was the most, uh, you know, gratifying piece of work because I was able to employ all the things that I like doing. I like impersonating, I like accents, I like, uh, you know, real events. And uh, I like, you know, perhaps illuminating the lives of ordinary people I like doing that and uh, I hope that I have a reasonable amount of empathy as well and it's nice I think one of our gifts as performers is to share you know with with the public um, a collective uh, empathy for people and uh, that's one of the gifts of our job is that you can uh, show hold the mirror up to nature and show people as they really are whether in, in, in whatever context so I think uh, that's one of the gifts we have, and uh, that job was me was a chance for me to explore that. Mm. You know? Yeah, it certainly is a very emotionally draining industry. Uh, yeah, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Now, how do you think the industry has evolved since you first started working in it? 
the, the, the two centuries that I've been working on it, uh, I think it's, I don't know, I think probably, yeah, I think, um, well, I suppose uh, there's, I don't know, there's a lot more work about it in many ways because there's more channels and there's more variety of work. Um, and I think, you know, television has got, uh, has, has broadened and the ways people watch shows has completely changed. Um, and uh, I think it's a pretty healthy place, perhaps. I suppose, you know, you could say that there are less interesting films to be seen in the mainstream than they used to be. You could say that. I think, um, you know, you have to get out there and find them. Um, and I see, you know, occasionally see really wonderful small films that never get to the big screen. And I think that's a shame um, because we're you know, perhaps in a more, more commercial uh, world now, perhaps, um, and so that could be an area that could be uh, improved. I think, um, but no, I think it's you know the the, the the business has got quicker and smarter, certainly, and perhaps slightly more Americanized. I don't know, you know, um, uh, uh, but I think that what's encouraging is that the volume of work is there and the quality is there, particularly you know just thinking of our. Uh, you know, our, our, the quality of our comedies and of our dramas, particularly in this country, are very, very good at the moment. You know, I'm just about to do um, Line of Duty, so you know that's a fantastic show, and I'm so delighted to be in that. Um, uh, you know, and you know, Wolf Hall, and um, uh, there's loads of other shows. That I'm trying to think of the top of my head, like um, uh, Happy Valley. You know, really fantastic dramas. Uh, War and Peace, for example, last year. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty healthy environment, I think. Mm, it certainly sounds like it. So, in summary, what are all the upcoming projects you've got that our listeners can look forward to seeing you in? Uh, well, I've got um, Inside Number Nine is one of the, you know, Rhys Shearsmith and uh, Steve Pemberton's. Uh, series, it's their third series and I've uh, done an episode of that called The Bill which is I think coming out soon which is, that's a great little gem um, I think and then uh, um, I've got this Tom Hardy series called um, Taboo um, which is coming out I think next year at some point that's a, an eight part BBC uh, drama uh, period piece with Tom playing a kind of uh, a guy who comes back from Africa to claim his inheritance in London and he gets embroiled into the dark and murky world of the uh, East India Company and trade routes out to America and he's caught between several factions and I play a kind of uh, representative of the Prince Regent who's uh, uh, a bit of a, he's a bit of a geezer so there's that coming out, that's a, and that's got written. I've got Steve Graham in it, and uh, it's uh, and Tom Hollander, Tom Hardy. I mean, it's a fantastic list. Jonathan Price. Uh, it's uh, an amazing group of, of actors. Um, so um, yes, that's coming out, and then Decline and Fall. I've just done, which for the BBC with Jack Whitehall, um, and then I'm going to be doing. Uh, obviously, Line of Duty is coming out. I'm doing that. I'm doing uh, Safe House. That's coming out. And then we roll on to next year with 
PW1A and a couple of other projects and my own project, which I can't talk about at the moment, but that we've got some interest from Channel 4 and I'm developing that. Uh, so, yeah, it's all, it's all pretty busy. Wow, what a, what a diverse range of exciting projects that you've got lined up. It's yes, lucky. Yeah, very quite lucky. Yeah. yeah. So, for our listeners who'd like to stay in touch and, and get the details of all those uh, all those projects, where can people find you online? Well, just I mean, I've, there's a uh, website uh, which is just, just you know, it's a, uh, there's a website where you can see what I'm up to. But Twitter's great. I do a little bit of tweeting, and I always sort of say what's coming up and what's on and what I, occasionally what I'm doing. And it's a shame that you can't quite release pictures of you on set with various people because you're not allowed to reveal what you look like until it comes out but um, I try and do that when a show comes out but I then show you know pictures of me on set with whoever uh, like Tom Hardy or something once they're released so there's all that kind of stuff but yeah you get an idea of the stuff I'm doing um, doing uh, you know via Twitter really mm. well I'll uh, put a link in the show notes so all our listeners can find you on Twitter Yes, Jason, it's Jason double underscore Watkins. Just one, one second, sorry, going just a minute. Yeah, right. I'll get you a chair, sorry. I'll get you a ladder. Shit. Hi, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Bennett, sir, yes. Uh, yeah, Jason double underscore Watkins on Twitter and I do a bit on Facebook but essentially I use Twitter as a way of getting people and there's another Jason Watkins fans I think we said some uh, some people have put a, uh, a fan page on Twitter as well so lovely well uh, finally what advice can you offer to anyone looking to work in the performance industry I think you've got to be um, you've got to find a way of enjoying it that's important because it can be tough um, uh, but you'd be surprised how creative you can be I think that's uh, that's uh, you know if you I think you've got to love people love people and love performing and that will carry you find ways of doing that if you're fascinated in people that will sustain you through everything I think well thank you very much for your wise words and your time today it's been a pleasure talking to you my, my pleasure Thank, thank you for contacting me. It's great to talk to you. That was my chat with Jason Watkins. Now, as always, there are a whole lot of movie reviews over on the website to check out. Those include Bridget Jones's Baby, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, and a whole lot more. So head on over to the movie reviews section of the website, preacherspodcast.net. Now, I've had the opportunity to check out some wonderful films thanks to our great supporters here at Talk To Me, and uh, they include Madman's new release, Wiener. Now, it was aired in the uh, Sundance Festival. It won the Best Documentary of 2016, and it's about the congressman uh, who was on the cusp of high office when a sexting scandal forced a humiliating resignation. And then he ran for mayor of New York City. And uh, it's all about his, his rise and fall, and it's an absolutely fascinating and wonderful documentary from the US. And it's out on DVD, thanks to Mad Men Now, and you can get that on the website, madman.com.au, or in any good retailer. Then, thanks to ViaVision Entertainment, I checked out Tom Selleck's The Jesse Stone Collection. Now, Tom Selleck is iconic for his role in Magnum P.I., and sometimes it's difficult for him to break that uh, typecasting. But in this series of uh, nine films, uh, including, uh, I think he won a Golden Globe for, for one of these films, 
he plays a much darker role, and it's very interesting to see him stretch his acting muscles. And I think any fan of mystery dramas or crime thrillers will enjoy the Jesse Stone collection, out now from Viavision Entertainment. Now, E1 Entertainment has been kind enough to send me some of their films on DVD as well, and they include Now You See Me Too. Now, you can see my review of that under the Movie Reviews website, as I uh, checked that out when it was in cinemas, but it is equally as much fun the second time round, though it still is reminiscent of the first film. But new films that haven't been released in cinemas in Australia that I've been able to see are Elvis and Nixon, which is out in November, uh, Nina, and Equals. Now, these films are, are fascinating for the reason... Firstly, they're straight to DVD, yet they, they star some pretty big names, uh, which is always interesting. And um, Nina obviously had a lot of controversy when Zoe Saldina was cast in the leading role, but I think that it's not so much her appearance that is uh, at fault here, it's more her performance. It's rather weak, and uh, unfortunately that lets the film down. Elvis and Nixon is fascinating, as I never thought I'd see Michael Shannon, the actor who's best known to playing General Zod, playing Elvis Presley. However, he does a remarkable job of impersonating the character, or Elvis Presley, and Kevin Spacey is a phenomenal President Nixon. The film itself is a rather weak premise, but there are certainly some good laughs. And I'll give you my review of Equals in the next podcast. Also available on DVD from E1 Entertainment is The Walking Dead Season 6. Now, I have only recently got into The Walking Dead, but I absolutely love the show. Andrew Lincoln's performance on its own could hold the series, and I think that if you love the show, you need to own Season 6 on DVD, and they're all out in cinemas, uh, and they're all out on DVD now. As always, we'd like to thank our generous supporters, Madman Entertainment, Biovision Entertainment, Palace Nova Cinemas, and Mad Zombie Collectibles. All of their details are in the show notes and on the website. I'll be back soon for another exciting podcast, but until then, I've been your host, Benjamin Mayer McKay. See you next time.